Tonight on Farage, the question that everyone's asking in private, but very few dare to do in public, is Joe Biden fit to be the leader of the free world? We'll also look at why GP appointments are so difficult to get face-to-face -face in many parts of the country. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by former Tory MP Rupert Allison, better known, I think, as Nigel West, perhaps the unofficial historian of the British Secret Services. Well, in the run-up to the elections in America last November, for the most of the six months before, Joe Biden stayed in a bunker in Delaware. He very rarely ventured out to meet members of the public. He did very few press interviews. And I suppose, in many ways, he didn't need to, because mainstream media in America and across the Western world, and crucially, social media, had made their minds up. They hated Donald Trump and everything he stood for. Joe Biden was their man, and they did everything to defend him. And in particular, everything to defend his son, Hunter Biden. The laptop from hell, as Hunter Biden's laptop was called, uh, which showed his involvement uh, with Ukrainian officials. It showed the money he was getting from Ukrainian oil and gas companies and much else. Even to debate and discuss that stuff, on social media could lead to being suspended or banned, and mainstream media didn't pursue it. When some states started mail-out ballots, tens of millions of mail-out ballots, without many checks and much scrutiny, nobody in mainstream media thought to check it. No, they wanted Joe Biden in the White House. Well, congratulations to The New York Times. Congratulations, CNN and others. You've got your man. And just 200 days into this presidency, we see rising, rapidly rising crime in American cities. We see a border situation where illegal immigration this year into the USA is on course to top two million people. But of course, it is the decision to unilaterally, unconditionally withdraw from Afghanistan that has been perhaps the biggest foreign policy failure in America for at least 40 years. And what's it led to? It's led to the Taliban now having $85 billion worth of US military equipment. It's led to the Chinese Communist Party now having access to some of the biggest lithium reserves in the world. It has led to the special relationship being so degraded uh, that many of us, even pro-Americans like me, say, well, with this man in charge, there are no overseas military ventures we could possibly go into. It brings, I think, a big question about the future of NATO. And undoubtedly, America has been humiliated on the world stage. It was a dreadful decision at every level. And who's to say, maybe we all face now the risk, the increased risk of terrorism in our own countries. But the question that I really want to ask about Joe Biden, and I was saying to myself in the run-up to November, this bloke is just an old duffer. He's not up to the job. Well, I now really want us tonight to debate, is Joe Biden fit to be the leader of the Western world? Just have a look at this clip. This was taken in July, so before the Afghanistan debacle. It was a CNN town hall meeting, and Biden was asked a question about why, in some parts of the black community in the USA, there was reluctance to have the jab. You, you, you got the vaccination? Yeah. Are, are, you, are you OK? I mean, you seem, no, it works. Or, you, you know, or, 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 or the mom and dad, or, 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 or the neighbor, or when you go to church, or when you're, you know, no, I, I, I really mean it. There are trusted interlocutors. Think of the people, if, if your kid wanted to find out whether or not there were, there's a man on the moon or whatever, you know, something, or, you know, whether those aliens are here or not. You know, who are the people they talk to beyond the kids who love talking about it? They go to people they respect. I mean, what was that all about? I know it was some form of English, but goodness gracious me, you need an interpreter to get through it. I mean, he was not coherent in any way in that answer. And that was back in July. Now have a look at Joe Biden giving a press conference in the immediate aftermath of the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. 
Thank you. May God protect our troops, our diplomats, and all brave Americans serving in harm's way. Well, so that was it. That was it. Kabul has fallen. It is a disaster at every level, and he doesn't take a single question from the press. Why? Because his aides, those that control him, frankly, don't think he's capable of answering them. But when he does go on a show, and perhaps what was designed to be a soft show, when he does answer a question, he shows a side of his personality uh, that I would say is verging on McAllis. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. So he's asked a question there about the two bodies that we saw falling from that aeroplane. And the answer is, hell, man, that was four or five days ago. What does it really matter? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Donald Trump had given an answer like that, he'd be painted out to be some sort of King Herod-type monster? And yet, because it's Sleepy Joe, and because the press can't admit the huge mistake they've made, he kind of gets away with it. But I think it shows a side of his personality that is particularly unpleasant. Now, after that press interview where he refused to take any questions at all, after the terrorist outrage at Kabul airport, he was actually forced into answering some questions. Ladies and gentlemen, they gave me a list here. The first person I was instructed to call on was Kelly O'Donnell of NBC. They gave me a list here. The first person I want to call is Kelly O'Donnell from NBC. Yep, he's not capable as president of the United States of America. He can't even chair a press conference. Only pet journalists are allowed to ask questions and in a certain order. And look, cognitive decline is not a funny thing. Many people see it in their own families and it's horrible. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But we're talking about a man here who isn't just the president of the United States of America. He is the leader of the free world. And it's my contention that he's not fit for office. Please let me know what you think by getting in touch with me gbviews at gbnews.uk. Well, let's get some opinions on this from the USA, and let's turn to Democratic National Committee member and strategist in California, Bob Mulholland. Bob, good evening and welcome, yes. and thank you for joining us here on GB News. Yes. Uh, Bob, it isn't just my view uh, that Biden's not fit for office. There, was, there were, in fact, some briefings uh, that came out over the weekend. You may have seen them close to our cabinet, uh, suggesting uh, that somehow maybe Biden looks gaga or doolally. So uh, I have to say to you, uh, his performance here, not just the decision, not just the decision in Afghanistan, but his public performance, it's not exactly, you know, your man is not exactly impressive, Bob, is he? Very impressive. Getting out of Afghanistan. We should have got out of there 20 years ago. Hey, incidentally, Trump used a list to call on reporters, too. And I didn't remember you criticizing them. Hey, you and Putin have the same position, which is you don't think Joe Biden should be president. I understand that. You came last year during Trump's rallies when no yep. British citizen was allowed into America. And we're still wondering how you got in. Oh, well, I did it by, I did it by quarantining, actually. So if you want to have a fight with me, you can. But I did it by obeying the rules. Oh, so there you go. I'm sorry about that. No other but, but let's get back to this question. You know, he won the election. There are arguments about how the election yes. was fought, but he won the election. No, there isn't. My contention here, my contention here is You're not, convinced. is not, yeah, and not just me, but clearly cabinet sources in Britain too, and many people around the world are saying that he is not fit. He is not up to the job of being president. Bob, you saw that clip. You saw that clip I played of the CNN town hall. You know, all of us in public life lose our thread from time to time. I get that. I understand that. But frankly, he was just all over the place, wasn't he? You sound like uh, you're talking about Trump's four years. It's amazing. Trump was a <laughs> mess. That's why, the, that's why the American voters threw him out of office. And that's why most of Trump's people are in jail now or pardoned and get out of jail. 
We're doing well, very well. What, I, well, I tell you what, Bob, Trump's foreign policy was a triumph, I think, compared to what Joe Biden oh, has done so far. Are you telling me, hand on heart, are you telling me that you really believe that Joe Biden, in terms of his mind and his ability, is the right man at this moment to be leader of the free world? Absolutely. And no American cares about a failed politician of political parties that were dumped in the English Channel. Yours. You know, well, no, actually, I tell you what we did do. We managed to take a rebellion in this country to overturn the establishment view and to get Brexit. So I'm pretty happy with that. But I'm trying well, to... But you, you're... You now, you want to talk about me. You want to talk about Donald Trump, and that's fine. I want to talk about Joe Biden. If you genuinely, hand on heart, believe that he's fit for office, I accept Absolutely. That. I accept that and I get that. But what I've got you, and as you're from the great state of California, can I just ask you? Yeah. This recall election, you know, your governor, Gavin Newsom, he's under some considerable pressure. Is he going to win that election on September the 14th? Yes, we will defeat the Republican-backed recall. Absolutely, we will defeat it. OK, no, fine. And just lastly, quickly, is Joe Biden going to see this whole presidency through? Absolutely, and he's going to run for a second term. Right, OK. I'd love to have a bet with you on that, but maybe not on air. Bob Mulholland, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Thanks. Good night, Nigel. Well, there you are. There is somebody who is a full-on Joe Biden supporter, and I think it's important that viewers on GB News get both sides of an argument. Well, now, maybe for a slightly different point of view, I'm going to be joined by former senior advisor in the Trump campaign and an advisor to George W. Bush's administrations and author of Smart Power Between Diplomacy and War, Christian Whiten. Christian, good evening. Welcome to GB News. Great to be here, Nigel. Thanks. Thank you very much. Can I ask you something? As a, as a Republican strategist, how on earth did you guys manage to lose the election to Joe Biden? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really is disappointing because when you think about this, the first politician running for president basically to do so from his back porch or his basement, as you pointed out, since the 19th century. And that's the big rap against a Donald Trump comeback as he you know, puts himself out. And of course, he's trying to, to, to make the case that there was a lot of voting irregularity, that maybe he did win in those swing states that he lost. Uh, but at the end of the day, Trump's own stand is are you a winner and or are you a loser? And he lost to Joe Biden. So there's a huge part of the Republican Party that still belongs to Donald Trump. He's an immensely important person. He's fighting the culture war in a way that Republicans and Republicans in Congress seem unable to do. But after all, he lost to Joe Biden. So uh, that raises real questions about his viability going forward. Well, it does. And of course, you know, given the way the American electoral cycles work, you know, the midterms are, well, I say almost upon us, but I mean, you know, they're literally 14 months away um, until these midterms. And of course, you know, the Senate is tied um, in the House. The Democrats have, have an absolutely minute uh, majority. So there are potentially, I would have thought, massive opportunities for the Republican Party going forwards. But let me ask you this, you know, firstly, do you think do you believe that Joe Biden is fit to be the leader of the Western world? No, I don't. You know, if you look at, at, at just the scope of what has happened recently, and of course it was prefaced, this isn't happening in a vacuum, it was prefaced by a number of foreign policy disasters. There's rejoining the Paris climate deal in exchange for nothing, repeatedly threatening Vladimir Putin with retaliation for cyber attacks and then doing nothing, kind of Biden's version of Obama's red line that he ignored. Uh, you have American diplomats sitting on their hands Why Chinese diplomats of all people gave us a lecture about supposed race in America. I suppose the Biden people didn't object because they actually agree with the Chinese. You have this, this uh, display of weakness that led up to what the Taliban uh, were able to do in Afghanistan. And you've seen this collapse. Uh, I'm not the only one, I think, that, that thinks that Biden's not up to this task. There's usually a huge wellspring of support for any president when a foreign crisis comes along. Yeah. When Jimmy Carter faced the Iran crisis, his poll numbers actually went up significantly, and that hasn't happened for Biden. People just think he's out of his depth. So, in the face of all of that, can your party, can the Republican Party, unite itself sufficiently to win the midterm elections? 
uh, I don't think we actually have to be that united to win the midterm elections, thankfully, because you still have, you know, a, a big divergence within the GOP. It was sort of held together by Trump, but you have people who want to go back to the, the Chamber of Commerce, the open borders, the supposedly free trade, that isn't really free trade way of doing things. You have Republican congressmen out still defending the, the military industrial complex, the U.S. Army that just lost in Afghanistan. I don't think our troops ever let us down, but our generals sure did. But the nice thing about going into elections, it's sort of just a referendum on who's in power, especially in the House of Representatives. Uh, Republicans actually gained a couple seats in 2020 in the House, and that's looking good. Senate's a little harder. Yeah, and, and, and Donald Trump, I mean, I, I was in America earlier this year um, and, and traveled to many, many states, and I could see amongst the Republican base, he is still absolutely adored in the most astonishing way. But he's lost his voice, hasn't he? Because, you know, he's been... I mean, amazing, isn't it? The leader of the Taliban is active on Twitter, but Donald Trump is banned from all the social media platforms. How does Trump find a public voice? Because if he can't, it's very difficult for him to lead the party into those midterms, I would have thought. It is. And what we have to remember and remind ourselves that what worked in 2016 may not work in 2024. It's a different media environment, a different information environment. Social media, I think, actually is a little bit of decline uh, as a way to reach around that establishment media. There are other ways of doing it, but you need some sort of platform. And for people like Governor DeSantis in Florida, uh, others in the Republican Party who can be seen fighting, not just issuing emails from New Jersey or from Florida, but actually uh, out there fighting the culture war and fighting the people who want to shut down the economy again, that will be, I think, decisive. Yeah, well, it's going to be a heck of a difficult job for him, but hey, he's overcome many obstacles before. Christian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, you've seen both sides of the argument. Let me know what you think. Is Joe Biden fit to be the leader of the free world? I really don't think he is. Give me your opinions. GBviews at GBnews. UK. Now, one of the subjects that we've been covering over the course of the last few weeks is the growing crisis within the National Health Service. People not getting diagnosed, people not getting seen. And now, with GPs, a new report out today suggesting that in some parts of the country, fewer than 50% of people are able to get face-to-face -face consultations. And that in other parts of the country, up to 10% of people have to wait three weeks for a GP appointment. I mean, kind of, what's the point? Well, joining me now is resident GP at the Daily Mail, Dr Martin Skirr. Martin, I know that you and the Daily Mail have been covering this story too. Uh, just how bad is it in terms of getting face-to-face -face GP appointments? I understand it's very difficult indeed. Um, and we hear that uh, many patients wait 10 days, two weeks, now we hear even three weeks, and, and long before the pandemic, this was happening. In fact, I know elderly patients who haven't seen a GP for two or three years, people who are housebound. The bottom fell out of the, the home visits world years ago. Probably 2004 was the beginning of it, when we lost 24-hour care. That was the beginning of the slippery slide. And older GPs like me who've been around for years are seriously worried at what we see. And, and I can't see it getting any better with the shortage of doctors that we now have. It takes a long time to train a GP. Yeah. Six years at medical school, two years as a, as a junior doctor in the hospital, and then three years of vocational training to be a GP. It's about 12 or 13 years. And, you know, um, Matt Hancock, when he was Secretary of State, was very keen to push the online type of consulting. I think it's... It's possibly attractive to younger people, not all, but to some, find it easy and convenient. And, and Hancock pushed this really hard. And part of it was that he knew that we had too few doctors for the number of patients that were presenting. Uh, his predecessor um, had promised us in 2015 5,000 more doctors by 2020. Yeah. What did we see? 74 fewer. That was wow. the reality. So wow. governments, you know, the, the, the NHS is is in real trouble here. And the politicians are probably quite happy to see more and more work coming online. And of course, pandemic, the pandemic played into their hands. Um, and the slippery slope gets steeper. It's, it's yeah. a serious worry. And of course, the population is still rapidly rising in this country. So I guess there are sort of two conclusions that I draw from this. I mean, one is that we poach doctors from countries that perhaps need them even more than we do. I'm thinking about poorer third world countries. 
But I wonder whether the other answer is... I mean, I've seen, Martin, in parts of Essex, for example, leaflets being delivered door-to-door, offering private GP consultations available 24 hours a day for a charge of £80. Do you think those that can afford it will start to opt out of the NHS and try and use the private sector? I think we see that happening all of the time. Um, and, but people will dip into the private sector when they need to. You know, they need a service that they can't easily access, like, um, say, anti-malarial tablets because they're going somewhere to a malaria zone or something like that, and they're in a hurry to, to, to get the problem sorted. Yeah. But it, it, it's suboptimal because you, you, you lose continuity of care. We've lost it anyway, I accept. But you may be consulting a private service that, that may... Uh, step in when you need them, but you're not going to speak to the same doctor all of the time. They may not keep records on you. They won't know your past history. They don't necessarily pay much attention to your allergies and, and you know, your own personal health history. It, it's, again, suboptimal. Uh, and it's, um, should we say, another worry that the people be seduced into that uh, service um, and, then and then have to rely on it. Are we at no, one of those moments? I mean, before it's been said that the National Health Service is the, is the nearest thing we have to a state religion that unites us, and last year we were outside our front doors clapping the workers in the early days and dark days of the pandemic. Are we at this dangerous moment where the public start to lose confidence in the National Health Service? I think many already have. Um, you know, we, we hear that we've got free health care at the point of delivery, and yet there are these discrepancies... For example, prescription charge of 9.25 in England, but no prescription charge in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland. When people confront that, they think, well, is this fair? This doesn't seem right. I'm a taxpayer. Um, and those sorts of things are further nails in that coffin of the so-called free healthcare at the point of delivery. It's not actually that free at the point of delivery, even though it's a sacred cow that is often you know, trotted out in front of us. Yeah, no, I, I have to say I rather agree there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. That was Dr Martin Skerr, resident GP at the Daily Mail, giving us, uh, well, no really good news. In a moment, I will talk about my old sparring partner, Michel Barnier, who is now running to be the French president on a ticket that appears to be completely the opposite of everything he ever stood for. Well, I'm asking you tonight, is Joe Biden fit to be the leader of the free world? And I've been asking for your opinions, and you are sending them in. You can also, of course, send in your Barrage the Farage questions, which we do right at the end of the show. Paul, on email, says to me, Biden may not be fit for office, but neither is Trump. America needs a new Reagan. Well, remember, you know, he was pretty much hated by large parts of the media, too. MJ, on email, says to me, Biden is the latest of the last four presidents that have failed the West. Biden has now given Afghanistan to China, including a trillion pounds worth of untapped natural resources, ensuring they will now be the new superpower. I'm sorry, I'm going to disagree with that very strongly. It isn't one trillion dollars worth of mineral resources. It's estimated to be 3.5 trillion dollars worth of those resources. Darren on email says to me, Biden has destroyed the once great nation, the US. He couldn't run a bath, let alone the USA. Christine says to me, Biden is not fit for purpose. Trouble is, there is no one to replace him. Well, actually, there is, because there's a vice president called Kamala Harris from California. But here's the fascinating thing. Her personal popularity ratings, and this is even before what has happened in Afghanistan, her personal popularity ratings are lower than Biden's. She just isn't liked. And that's, I think that's a very big crisis for the Democrat Party. Kevin says, surely the question should be, are any of our political elite fit to lead us? Answer to the question is a big fat no. Now, my what the Farage moment. I've got two or three today, but I'm going to start with Michel Barnier. Now, you know, I did battle with Barnier for year after year after year in the European Parliament. He was always unfailingly polite, but in a rather haughty kind of way. And I remember him once in the coffee room, coming across, saying good morning. I said, sit down. He did. 
We had a little chat and he told me I was small-minded and I was anti-business because I didn't support the freedom of movement and I was complaining so bitterly about their policy across the Mediterranean, which from 2015 was anyone that set foot on EU soil could stay, and of course, vast numbers came. But he's now throwing his hat into the ring to be French president on a ticket that is anti-immigration. Yes, he wants zero immigration into France for a period of time, and he wants to make France a stronger country, whereas previously, thought he wanted to give all that sovereignty to Brussels. Well, let's go to Paris and speak to freelance journalist Peter Allen. Peter, good evening to you. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I know that uh, politicians are quite good at changing policy as and when the time suits, but is it even credible that Michel Barnier goes back into French politics on an anti-immigration ticket? It does seem extraordinary, doesn't it? But it's something he has to do if he has any chance of becoming president of France. Politics are moving to the right here. Uh, they, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, anti-immigration sentiment, for example, um, closing borders, uh, national sovereignty. That's the, the mood in French politics now. You see it in everybody, whether it's uh, Emmanuel Macron, even the left, uh, left-wing parties now, have very, very strong, um, increasingly anti-immigration policies. Of course, you have the far right with uh, Marine Le Pen. And so Barnier, he's a, a politician, ultimately. Uh, he wants to be, uh, he wants to get the ticket of the Gaullist Conservatives, who are currently called the Republicans, the Republicans. Yep. And uh, they, of course, uh, if they do get through to the, uh, the, the first round, they'll be doing battle against potentially uh, the far-right Rassemblement National. So those kind of policies are essential if Barnier is going to have any hope of winning. But what I find fascinating, Peter, about your analysis is that everybody from Marine Le Pen to people on the left are talking about national sovereignty, are talking about immigration, are talking about borders. How is any of this compatible with France's membership of the European Union? Or hasn't that struck anyone yet? Well, um, it's a strange place, France. They seem to sort of uh, fit uh, ideas that don't look uh, as though they would work together. Uh, they do fit them together, and they try and uh, make some kind of compromise from them. So that's how they would argue what they're, in fact, going to be doing. And Barnier will be no different. He will have to make the right noises to attract uh, a huge uh, part of the French electorate, which votes for the far right. But he will also have to try and appeal to, to left-wing voters as well, if he has any hope of becoming president. So it's that strange balancing act. And again, it all boils down, really, to the immense power you get into this one figure who is uh, the president of France. Yeah, Enormous no. How, how the French system works, Nigel, do you know? No, no, they, I mean, enormously powerful figure. And finally, Peter, just quickly, um, I've seen some shots um, of people fighting back against vaccine passports to enter bars and restaurants, sort of having picnics on the streets of Paris. Can you just tell me what you've seen at first hand? Oh, I've, I've seen terrible things uh, in favour of this uh, movement. Every Saturday, they're out rioting. The uh, yellow vests now are supporting them. And uh, there's a lot of trouble. It was the seventh week uh, of rioting last Saturday. Saturday is the institutionalised riot day, would you believe it now, <laughs> when people come up on the streets and start showing their opposition to the government, especially on these policies. It's not a huge movement, but it's a very vocal movement. And again, it's supported by all kinds of politicians who are looking for votes. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the left, is supporting it. Marine Le Pen, the far right, is supporting it. So, and as you say, Nigel, there have been these picnics where people yeah. say, well, we're not allowed into cafes and bars without our passes. So let's bring our, own, bring our own baguettes along and bottles of wine and do it ourselves. How wonderfully French. Peter, thanks very much indeed for joining us this evening. My next What the Farage moment, and I don't know how I missed this, but I did, I just hadn't realised that for the course of the last year, if you want to take your pet dog in the car, across on the ferry to Northern Ireland, which of course is a part of the United Kingdom. Well, I'm afraid to say that if you want to do that, you're going to finish up with a bill, and quite a big bill, £180 for an animal health certificate to take your dog from England across the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland, a part of the United Kingdom. And we've been hearing 
about problems with food and everything else, but just that little example of, the, of that £180 shows you the extent to which, under this Brexit deal, Northern Ireland effectively has been annexed and is now part of a foreign country. It is disgraceful. And my third, what the Farage moment, I can't believe this. This is Michael Gove. Yes. Nightclub. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> so Gove <laughs> was raving in a nightclub until half past two in the morning up in Aberdeen. Uh, remarkable shots. Well, I'm all for people enjoying themselves. I just had never quite thought of Michael Gove as being one of those sort of night club ravers. But there he was. Apparently there was a pub downstairs um, and he was in the pub and it got to closing time. Um, and this nightclub called Bohemia uh, was in full swing upstairs and there was Michael Gove. Interestingly, and I'm pleased to say that even though Tory cabinet ministers are probably not that popular in Scotland, um, I think everyone treated him really as being a bit of a novelty. Um, and it seems that nothing unpleasant or untoward was said to him, which is a good thing, but truly pretty astonishing pictures. Now, in a moment, I'll be talking pints with Rupert Allison, former Conservative Member of Parliament and spy writer Nigel West. Well, by far the most popular part of the show is, of course, Talking Pints. And joining me tonight is Rupert Allison. Rupert, good evening and cheers. You're very good health. Thank you for coming. Good to see you. Now, you were a Conservative Member of Parliament for ten years. You went in in 1987, when I guess Margaret Thatcher was pretty much... It was the third election she'd won, pretty much at the height of her powers. And, and there you were, a sort of mid-30s... And there she was, stabbed in the back and abandoned by her own cabinet. Her backbenchers would have backed her, I think. How did you feel about her as leader? And I mean, was she impressive? Or was she... Or was she I mean, by 1990, was she coming towards the end? She was. I think the difficulty was that she was, became increasingly isolated and she surrounded herself with people who gave her, I think, very poor advice, including her PPS. But the difficulty was the election itself. And I remember how she was always very suspicious of me because I had taken an interest in the security and intelligence debates. And you'll remember the 1989 Security Service Act that I had advocated. And she was very suspicious. She, she didn't think that people had a, could have a legitimate interest in the intelligence community. She came round eventually, but it, it was a while. And she was... She was very cautious about that whole subject because she'd been duffed up. If you remember, mm. when she first came to power in 1979, the first big issues were all intelligence failures, intelligence-related. Anthony Blunt in November 79, the Falklands War, classic failure of intelligence. So she was very nervous about the intelligence community and she was uh, slightly suspicious of me too, it's fair to say. But one issue on which you had very much common cause was Europe, or the EEC, which then turned into the EC, and then at the Maastricht Treaty turned into the EU. And you were one of those Maastricht rebels. I remember it all... I mean, I was in business at the time, but I was following the, the debate very, very closely. And indeed, the passing of that treaty is what directly got me involved in politics. I thought, well... But it was the end of my politics. Well, I because, remember. Because in the 97, I lost the Torbay parliamentary constituency by 12 votes. Yes. But it was UKIP that stood against me. Yes. And a delightful man, Graham, who was a, became a, a friend and had been a constituent, yes. he stood against me and I begged him. I said, you will... You're never going to win this seat. And by standing against me, uh, and he did get about 1,900 votes, uh, you will split my vote. I think that's right. I think in that case, UKIP did cost... Conservative votes. And, and what cost you we got in the end but, but, was an enthusiastic European. But in the end, what UKIP did was to destroy the Labour Party. Absolutely. So if you take the long view of this, yes, you yes. were a casualty. No, and no, I, and I, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm happy that. to have been a, a casualty. But you were a hero of mine because when it came to the, the, the final vote, John Major couldn't get this through without, without the lowest trick in the book. 
using a motion of confidence debate. And all of them, Bill Cash and all the others who'd said it was the end of our independence, all traipsed in and voted for this treaty, which they'd advocated against. And Dennis Skinner, the Labour backbencher, shouted, it's a bloody good job you lot weren't here in 1940. And dramatic scenes. But there was one MP missing. <laughs> a certain member for Tor Bay, Rupert Allison. And I think you'd gone to New York with somebody for a long weekend, hadn't you? No, I, what happened was that I decided that <laughs> I was never going to be put in the position of the Prime Minister. And this is what John Major used to do. He, he would put his arm around you and push you through the, the wrong lobby. Now, because there were 15 others who said they were going to vote against the government in, on, the, in, the, in the motion of confidence, uh, I thought nobody's going to notice me, but I'm not prepared to be bullied by John Major and I'll just, I'll just stick it out and I won't actually attend. <laughs> and little did I know... And that you were in New York, weren't you? Uh, I was. With, and, and with a friend? No, 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 with, with my wife, as it well, happens. Okay. But, yeah. um, but it was the, the day beforehand. And uh, I could have come back, and uh, I decided not to. And Good for you. Well, Good for you. It, it created some difficulties, but, and I lost the whip, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it was restored to me. And that's why it made it so difficult for me in 97. Yes to espouse uh, a UKIP position. Yeah. And I tried to explain that to Graham yeah. in Torbay, but, but uh, no. well, we are where I we say, are. As I say, in the end... I'm a battlefield casualty. You know, yeah, yeah, for a good I, cause. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that genuinely is right. But, Rupert, you're better known as Nigel West. You're better known, you know, that is your pen name. You've written book after book after book. You've written historical books about spy operations in World War II, you've written books about MI5, books about MI6. Are you the unofficial historian of British Secret Services? In a strange sort of way, yes. When I originally started working in the 1970s on the intelligence community, there was great hostility from MI5 and from SIS, and I was injuncted at one stage by the Attorney General and the consequence of that was that I just was more interested in the community than ever, and I continued writing. And those books um, stand up rather well today, I think, but I'm continuing to write in that particular field. Yeah, no, absolutely, and you've sold a lot of books, and you've done pretty well out of it, I think, and, and you've had one or two legal cases, and you won some and lost some, and, I mean, I know that's the way life is. But let's just talk about intelligence. I mean, was it the Cold War that got you into all of this? What, where, where was your interest? No, it was, the second, it was the Second World War, and I was educated in a Benedictine monastery, and one of the monks had taken holy orders after a lifetime in the intelligence community. Okay. And he used to tell us extraordinary stories. He'd escaped from a prisoner of war camp in Silesia, walked literally across Europe, across France, had got to um, Spain, then to Portugal, joined SIS, and he became a monk because he'd killed somebody and this had preyed on his conscience uh, forever afterwards. And he was a, a wonderful man. And his great friend in SIS, who used to visit the school driving down to Cornwall, was John le Carre. Oh. And so he would come and talk to us boys. And so there was a, a group of boys from that same monastery who went into the intelligence community. Uh, and one of them, Mark Allen, was responsible for negotiating... Um, with Colonel Gaddafi in Libya and uh, uh, negotiating the deal that gave United Nations access to all the uh, chemical, biological and bacteriological sites in Libya. So there were yeah. several people who got involved in the intelligence yeah. community. And, and intelligence is always so important, isn't it? I mean, the massive row we've had over Iraq and whether the intelligence was right over that. And one wonders what intelligence Joe Biden had before he made this decision on Afghanistan. And I, well, it's well, I want to bring you right up to date and ask you, uh, you know, is this a big intelligence failure? It is in the sense that we are where we are. The difficulty is that people expect the intelligence community to predict the future. That's not what it's there for. It provides a snapshot of what is going on today and perhaps, as Colin Figures used to say, offers uh, sort of cat's eyes into the dark for the future and for guidance. But it, it's not there to tell you what to do. Options are given, but what was so shaming about Joe Biden and the decision to withdraw from Bagram 
is mm. that the Afghan National Army, the way that they fought and the way that they were taught was with an iPad. They would go out on patrol with a piece of intelligence that gave them real-time reconnaissance through drones overhead. They could call in airstrikes when they needed to. They could get on their devices the patrol area that they were going to visit. They could see where the IEDs had been placed in the past two months. They had all the aerial reconnaissance. Overnight, they were stripped of that intelligence capability. So they were being asked to go out on patrol without any idea of what they were going to face, whether or not there was an ambush around the corner, which a drone hitherto had given them advance warning. So for Joe Biden to go on television and say that the Afghan National Army wasn't prepared to fight when the Americans had withdrawn from Bagram overnight yes. and taken away that air cover without warning anybody, and the Afghan that, was, army, that was wicked. And the Afghan army had taken, what, 45,000 casualties since 2014? Yeah. I mean, they were fighting damned hard. Yeah, um, and that brings me on to the other big subject of the day, China. The Chinese Communist Party, more specifically. I mean, when we talk about espionage, you know, we think I, think... I think Joe Public thinks in terms of the Cold War and Berlin and spy swaps and many of the things that you've written about in World War II that happened. We don't think about China in general terms. Well, we should. Tell us why. We should. Partly because every business that enters into a partnership, any kind of commercial undertaking in the People's Republic, will have a relationship, whether they like it or not, with the Ministry of State Security. And the difficulty about looking at the MSS is that they do intelligence in a very different way. They don't um, pay many of their agents. They don't have stations or residenturas under diplomatic cover overseas. Uh, they run their agents in a very different kind of way using Guangxi, which is um, family obligation. They'll go to uh, ethnic Chinese, usually, invite them back to the People's Republic and then say that they've got an obligation to the Chinese people. So they, their recruitment methods are very different, but they pose a serious threat. Bear in mind that the longest and the deepest penetration of the CIA uh, over 32 years by the leading CIA China analyst was a man called Larry Wu Tai Chin. This was a Chinese case. It wasn't Soviet. It wasn't Russian. So when you're dealing with the Chinese, you're dealing with the government. And the government is there to represent and to protect the, uh, the, the, the Communist Party of the People's Republic of, of China. It's not about the Chinese people, it's about the Communist Party. Mm. And when you're dealing with <laughs> these people, you lose all proprietary information, they will steal everything because they think they're entitled to do so. And much of this, much of this intelligence that China wants to gather, as I understand it, isn't so much about military equipment or government strategy, important, though, of course, all that stuff, I'm sure, will be. But much of it is what I think we term industrial espionage. It, it, it's industrial espionage, it's commercial secrets, it's information shortcuts, uh, software. All of that is very attractive to a Ministry of State Security, which has a relationship with 300 university research centres in the People's Republic. So, again, when you think you're dealing with a legitimate company, you're not. You're dealing with MSS. When you're dealing with a university or a research centre, yeah. you're dealing with MSS. It, it's a very strange way of, of doing intelligence. And from a Western perspective, it's not legitimate. Their priorities are the Uyghurs, Tib the Tibetan nationalists, um, the people who uh, uh, are involved in Falun Gong, which is this religious movement. It's a different movement. culture entirely, isn't it, at every level? It, it's like people who've never been to Russia appointing themselves Kremlinologists and pontificating about what's going on in the Kremlin without the slightest idea. And the same for China, because it's so different the way they collect intelligence and the, the way that it's so fragmented. And there are 750,000 students in North America who are uh, Chinese and all of them have a relationship, well, whether they like it or not, with MSS. This is what, I, mean, I was thinking about this. I mean, you know, our boarding schools in this country, our private boarding schools are filled with uh, very high-achieving, academically high-achieving Chinese students. We see 
universities like Cambridge taking very large endowments from Chinese organisations. I mean, is there a danger that this is a form of spying? Y yes, um, it, it, it's... It's cultural uh, appropriation mm. and it's commercial appropriation. But it's done on, a, on an industrial scale by MSS who very often will recruit people. They pitch everybody. Instead of taking just one individual and concentrating mm. on that individual, they'll pitch 300 people and, really? <laughs> and they don't take no for an answer. They'll come back. There was a case in New York uh, where they had a sleeper for 21 years before they, uh, they pitched him again and again and again and mm. finally activated him. So they do intelligence in a very different way. And so it's, how, it's difficult for us to understand. How is it, Rupert, how is it that so many senior figures in this country and across the West, and I'm talking about former bosses of big companies, I'm talking about former senior civil servants, I'm talking um, about uh, many um, in the political world, um, I noticed a link, actually, between those that were pro-Brussels, who've now become pro-China. I genuinely do. Why did Boris Johnson think that Huawei were fit to play quite a major role in our telecoms industry? I, I, I can't speak for what went through his mind, but I think that it's fairly obvious that he took the view that they were there already and that we didn't mm. have the capability in this country of being able to run any kind of an organisation without Chinese components and, and participation. And if we'd gone to somebody else, it would have been a foreigner, it would have been probably two companies in Finland who were potential um, contenders yes. for this. Yes. And the difficulty there is that they <coughs> might have been taken over by a foreign country. So uh, you deal with the devil that you, that you know. And we do understand the Chinese, and they have not made an attempt to run the kind of political campaigns and political espionage that they did in the United States, particularly during the, the Clinton era when they got mm -hmm. very badly burned in California. Yeah. So what next for Nigel West? Does, does he go on writing books about espionage? Uh, happily, the intelligence business is booming. <laughs> uh, and I think there is another entire book to be written about uh, intelligence failures and failures of strategy. Why didn't we keep Bagram? Uh, that, Why? That would have been... A, I mean, those hellish scenes outside Kabul, background would have been very different, wouldn't it? I disapprove of people sitting in armchairs telling uh, the Taliban what people are likely to do, or, you know, just like in the Falklands yeah. campaign. Do you remember the admirals who were always on television explaining to Buenos Aires exactly what the next step was going to be? So yes. I don't think that we should talk about um, Afghanistan too much, except to say that it is a tragedy that we lost Bagram, it might have been possible to have an armoured corridor. It's, it's what, uh, it's an hour and a half from Kabul to Bagram. Uh, it would have been possible. And mm. to leave our future in the hands of Joe Biden, and can I just remind you that when the Director of Central Intelligence, Bob Gates, was undergoing his um, confirmation hearing, he said that Joe Biden had been on the wrong side of every major foreign policy decision, and it was Joe Biden by the way, who prevented the CIA from going after Osama bin Laden. I've been asking the question all evening of our public, is Joe Biden fit to be leader of the free world? I think you've just answered the question, haven't you? <laughs> I think it's one of the great tragedies. And if we go back in history, in 1956, during the Suez Crisis, that was a moment when the American ambassador was withdrawn from London. It's the only time in our post-war history that that happened. And yet, during that period, although the relationship between Anthony Eden and uh, Eisenhower and Nixon, who was running on a re-election yeah. campaign um, of peace and freedom, uh, the idea that this particular um, operation would compromise politics forever was nonsensical because all the Joint Intelligence Committee meetings during the Suez campaign, even though there was frostiness from Washington, they were all attended by Dan de la Bardlian, who was the CIA station chief in London. Yeah, that's and, crucial. And our attack on Egypt and destroying the, um, the Air Force on the morning of the uh, attack on Suez that was all provided based on intelligence provided by U-2 aircraft 
flown by the CIA from British bases. Yeah, we need in that Cyprus. We need that relationship, Rupert. We do. That was Rupert Allison on Talking Pints. We could have gone on for hours. OK, we get to the end of the show and we get to Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, which I get no previous sight of. So here goes. Alan on email asks, Nigel, should we be concerned for our security at the amount of information that is being passed to the media from government offices disguised as whistleblowing? Most cabinets le leak like sieves. Uh, this one, perhaps more than any I can remember in modern times. That's where we are. Mackie on email asks, Nigel, is there a quick fix that the present government can do to stop the migrant crossings? Oh, yes. Very simple. You just take the boats under tow, as Tony Abbott did in Australia, tow them back into the harbours of Calais or Boulogne, and believe you me, the French will be at the negotiating table within 48 hours. Let's keep going if there's time. John on email asks, Nigel, is there... A little sadness in you that you never made it to the House of Commons. You'd have shook them all up. Well, I tell you what, if I'd been in the House of Commons, I would not have been a leader of a group as I was in the European Parliament, and I would not have been sat in seat number 20 on the front row with Jean-Claude Juncker in seat number 21, not five feet from me. So, you know, actually, the way it worked out, I think the European Parliament was a better platform for what I was campaigning for. Susan, on email, asks, Nigel, when are you going to be elected to the Lords and go and sort them out? Well, there are no elections to the House of Lords. That's the problem. You've got to be a mate of the Prime Minister or a party donor. Um, I don't think they're going to send me to the House of Lords any time soon. I suspect if I did go there, um, I'd find them even less convivial than I found my fellow MEPs from all over Europe in Brussels. Marcus asks, I think you're the most famous Nigel in the world. What do you think? Well, I've got Nigel West here. He's quite famous. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I may be. I don't know. I probably am. Not many boys are being named Nigel now, but that's not my fault. It started before I became well-known. And finally, Heather asks, Nigel, what is your favourite all-time movie? Um, it's got to be Spies, Ipcrest file. There we are. Funeral in Berlin. The lives of others. The lives of others. There we are. You see, there's a man that really knows. Right, now, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Rupert.